Hello everyone. This is our fourth and final sermon looking at the book of Ruth. We have been learning lessons in commitment. And the lesson this week is about a commitment to redemption. We all love redemption stories. Many of literature's classic tales contain them. Scrooge goes from miserly cynic to a man of warmth and generosity in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Jean Valjean goes from bitter criminal to worker of charity and justice in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Emotional and headstrong Marianne is redeemed from serious illness to value Colonel Brandon in Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I could go on. Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, George Eliot's Silas Marner, Ian McEwan's Atonement, Don Quixote, Faust. These are the greats that have been read by millions. Our love of redemption stories is also the reason many of us watch sport. My football team had one this week. Five years ago, we lost a playoff final at Wembley on penalties. For my family in the stands, it was heartbreaking. The club then nearly ceased to exist as it was crippled by debt. Yet on Monday night, they returned to Wembley, and this time they won against their local rivals to reach the championship for the first time in their history. For Wiccan Wanderers fans, this is the stuff that dreams are made of. We all know then what a redemption story contains. It must have a correction of past wrongs. And the more dramatic a way it does it, the better. The Bible contains many redemption stories. The book of Ruth is just one. We could think of Noah, Abraham and Saul of Tarsus to name just a few others. But all these stories come together to point to the greatest redemption story of them all. The story of the cross and empty tomb. That true story is the source of our salvation. And we find in Ruth chapter 4 that amazingly, its lead character, Jesus, is genetically connected to Ruth, the Moabite himself. Let us go straight to the passage now and find out more about how God's redemption works. Ruth chapter 4 begins with Boaz on a mission. After Ruth's proposal for marriage in chapter 3, Boaz wastes no time in tending to affairs. He does not want Ruth and Naomi to be trapped in their anxious uncertainty any longer than is necessary. In ancient society, business and legal transactions were decided upon by the local elders. Their makeshift parliament took place at the town gate. Any of you who have seen the famous photograph of the Parliament on St Kilda will know that this sort of system was carried out not very far from here, less than a hundred years ago. At the town gate, Boaz negotiates the marriage settlement in full view of many witnesses. As throughout the whole book, Boaz acts with great integrity and in this case pays due respect to the family member who was a nearer relative to Ruth and Naomi than he was. 
The complicated transaction that takes place is difficult for us to understand for several reasons. It involves ancient customs that we are not familiar with, and the author leaves out many of the details in an effort to allow the story to flow. But there are two bits of known background that will help us. First, according to God's law, each family in Israel had a nominated guardian redeemer. These had the specific responsibility of protecting vulnerable family members and rescuing those who had fallen on hard times. In Leviticus 25, we read that they were to redeem any land that had been sold outside of the family and redeem any person who had been sold into slavery to pay off a debt. In other words, guardian redeemers had to see that justice was done both to and by their family. In Israel, all land belonged to God. He then distributed it among his people equally. This was to ensure that all had enough to live on and that no oppressive hierarchies developed. It is a great concern then that we read in verse 3 of Naomi selling a piece of land. This could mean that Naomi was in such desperate poverty that she was trying to sell the land just to provide for her and Ruth. If this was the case, the guardian redeemer of her family certainly had responsibility to swoop in and buy it to make sure the land did not leave the family. But it could also mean something else. It is possible that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, sold the land before he scarped off to Moab in chapter 1. If that was the case, Naomi, who has returned to Israel, is trying to reassert her place. She is trying to sell her right to repurchase the land in order to get the land itself. Again, if this is what is going on, the guardian redeemer has a responsibility to step in and help her, for Naomi has no funds available to do this herself. So the great question is, will the guardian redeemer that is nearer to Naomi than Boaz is, be prepared to act in this way. At the end of verse 4, we find that he is. Indeed, initially, this unnamed relative seems excited at the prospect of redeeming Naomi's land. Although he will have to pay out himself in the first place, he will benefit in the long run. He will have access to the produce and profit coming from the land. As Naomi's family is enabled to flourish once more, he will flourish with it. It all seems ideal. However, we all need to hang on a bit. There is a second piece of background information that we require. In God's law, there was another practice called leveret marriage. In many ways, leveret marriage was related to the law about the land. If a married Israelite died before producing an heir, his brother was to marry his widow and produce an heir in his stead. This sounds bizarre to us, but it was all to ensure that land and family remained fairly distributed throughout the whole country. 
In this case, Naomi had a husband who died. But there is no benefit to come from marrying Naomi as she is already well past childbearing age. Besides, Naomi did have a son and heir. The only problem is that he has also died and that complicates things. In the end, it all boils down to the fact that if the land is to stay in Naomi's family, it is Ruth that must be married by the close family relative. However, when Boaz announces that if his fellow guardian redeemer wants to purchase Naomi's land, he must also marry Ruth, the unnamed relative immediately turns it down. He goes from an excited, I will redeem it, to the definitive, I cannot redeem it, in a matter of seconds. Why the sudden U-turn? There are two reasons. First, Boaz again makes it very plain in verse 5 that Ruth is a Moabite. Israelites were not supposed to marry Moabites. Offspring of these mixed marriages were not allowed into the assembly for fear they would corrupt the faith of the nation with Moabite idols. So this relative is likely to have become very worried about being drawn into this family's scandal and shame. Second, if this man married Ruth and had a son, the land would remain in the name of Marlon. Ruth's deceased first husband. Maybe this man already has a son from a previous marriage. He would therefore lose out. Maybe he just wants the land to be in his own name as a matter of pride. Whatever the case, verse 6 tells us that the refusal comes from a place of self-interest, both in terms of economic legacy and societal status. In reality, this man's decision was probably common sense. Just as it was common sense for Orpah to return to her own people in chapter 1. But just as Orpah's return highlighted Ruth's commitment to Naomi, this guardian redeemer's rejection only serves to highlight the selfless devotion of Boaz. This chapter again shows Boaz to be kind and generous, loyal and sacrificial. He is a godly man who follows God's law, not just to the letter, but with the spirit that it was intended. He is everything a redeemer should be. After the guardian redeemer's rejection and Boaz's assertion that he is willing to marry Ruth, The deal is swiftly closed with the bizarre removing of a sandal. But what we are really to notice is the reaction of the other elders. They are so impressed by Boaz's self-sacrifice that they are inspired to rain down blessings on him and his future family. It appears then that to be a redeemer, you must be prepared to sacrifice. But from that sacrifice, blessings flow for those in need. So Boaz and Ruth get married. Their love joins them together and soon they have a son. He is given the name Obed, which means servant. 
a fitting name if ever there was one for the offspring of these two. Of course, Naomi is delighted. She proudly takes little Obed into her lap and no doubt begins dandling him on her knee. At this sight, the women of the town sing out in praise. They sing out that not only has Boaz redeemed Ruth, but little Obed has redeemed Naomi. He will grow up to provide for her family. But through all this song and dance, the women make the effort to overtly praise God. As onlookers, they recognise that he is the one who has been behind everything that has taken place. Naomi had fled with her husband to Moab. Whether that was the right or wrong, that extremely difficult decision led Naomi to a hazardous place outside the safety of God's people and land. Yet through his great mercy, God has brought her back. It was God that ended that initial famine. It was God that made the journey home possible. It was God that inspired Ruth to show kindness to Naomi. It was God, again, who led Ruth to Boaz's fields, as Naomi herself excitedly declared in chapter 2, verse 20. God has not stopped showing his kindness, she said. And here, finally, in verse 3 of chapter 4, it was God who specifically enabled Ruth to conceive and bear a child. Naomi at one stage was empty and full of bitterness. Through the arrival of Obed, she is now full and rejoicing. But the women know that this is all the work of God. Every step of the way, his hand has been active behind the scenes. If Boaz's actions show us that redemption requires sacrifice, Naomi's story shows us that it also involves substitution. In Naomi's life, God turned emptiness to fullness, bitterness to joy, alienation to reconciliation, wandering to homecoming, death to life. Redemption in the Bible takes place when God's richest blessings are substituted in for our sorrow and sin. As the chapter draws to a close, there is one final act of redemption for us to consider. The book ends with a genealogy, and it turns out that Ruth's great-grandson is none other than the great King David himself. The book began with Elimelech, the man whose name meant, My God is King. It ends with God providing a king. The book began with Elimelech acting as though God was not king at all, because he took matters into his own hands and quit the promised land. The book ends with God making a way to send his king, regardless of our shortcomings. God can turn all things for good, and will always see that his purposes are achieved. Do you remember how the very first verse of the book stated that it was set in the time of the judges? A time of apostasy, rebellion and suffering in the land. A time of great unrest. David is forever known as the king who brought that unrest to an end. 
He fought God's battles, defeated God's enemies, established God's city and ensured that worship was carried out correctly. David is the great hero of the Jewish faith. He was the king they longed for and the one they looked back on. Still today, Jews go by the star of David. Yet this genealogy shockingly tells us that David's great-grandmother was a Moabite, a member of the enemy. What are we to learn from this? Well, it is a sign that God wants all people to know and love him. He wants his blessing to extend from Israel out into all the world. God cares for the most unexpected people and has their best interests at heart. Yet the message of Ruth goes even further than that. Ruth led to King David, but King David's greatest descendant is none other than Jesus himself. That, of course, means that Jesus is also related to a Moabite, a sign of him being not just the Lord of Israel, but the saviour of the whole world. Suddenly we see that Jesus is the ultimate redeemer that this whole chapter points towards. He showed the sacrifice of Boaz when giving up his life on the cross. He made the substitution of Obed, taking our emptiness and pain and giving us fullness of life in return. Jesus exceeded even King David by making the way for us all to come to rest. Through death and resurrection, Jesus brings God's shalom, his wholeness and peace to all who believe. If it was scandalous that Moabite Ruth led to King David, when we reach glory and see the unexpected and undeserving people who are there alongside of ourselves, we will know the redemptive grace of Jesus is even more outrageous. This brings us to the end of this wonderful book, a book that is truly fit for our current situation. We have seen a time of suffering and disaster, a time of tragedy, transformed into good, blessing and the furthering of God's plans. How did this happen? It happened because God is supremely committed to us, bound to us even, in steadfast love. We are his covenant people today, and so we can trust that he will do the same for us in this coronavirus crisis. How are we to respond to this good news? Well, we are to seek to be committed like God is to us. We are to be committed to those who are suffering like Ruth was to Naomi. We are to be committed to foreigners in need like Boaz was to Ruth. We are to be committed to our family, both biological and church, just as Naomi, Ruth and Boaz were, and the unnamed redeemer of chapter 4 failed to be. Finally, we are to be committed in all things, thought, word and deed, to Jesus, our ultimate guardian redeemer.